So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and let's just get right to it, okay? Because we are going to be looking at one of the most misunderstood, most misquoted, most taken out of context verses in all of the Bible. It's in the top 10 taken out of context verses in the Bible. It's at least in the top five, and maybe it even holds the number one position. So what's the verse? It's the one that says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. It's the one that probably doesn't mean what you think it means. It's the one that often gets applied to dating or marriage or business practices, but actually has nothing to do with those things. It has everything to do with the gospel, though. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul is going to remind the Corinthians once again that the free grace of God and the performance treadmill that we all have a tendency to get on to try to earn our way and impress God, that those two things do not go together. He's going to remind this church and us that works righteousness And justification by grace should not be tag team partners. He's going to remind us that the law and the gospel should never be mixed together like a cocktail. That's what this verse is all about. It's about not mixing the law and gospel so that you end up with a gospel cocktail. And that's what you get when you do. You get the gospel. And we have to keep the context in mind as we look at the passage. We have to keep in mind everything that we've seen so far in 2 Corinthians. We have to keep in mind that Paul is attacking the theology of the super apostles. He's been doing it bit by bit, a little subtly, kind of taking little pokes at them. They know what he's doing. But by the time we get to chapter 10, Paul will absolutely unload on this group of false teachers, the super apostles who have invaded the Corinthian church, and he will unload on them with all of the apostolic authority that has been given to him by God. And when we finally get there, Lord knows when that will be, we will see that Paul does in fact have weapons of righteousness in his right hand and left hand as he mentioned in chapter 6 verse 7. And we will see that the weapons of Paul's warfare are able to destroy thoughts and theologies that are contrary to the gospel. So what in the world is Paul talking about when he says that the Corinthians should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers? One scholar has proposed at least 12 possible ideas. Well, all righty then. Usually verse 14, though, is applied to mixed marriages and mixed business partnerships. In other words, this verse is often quoted to keep Christians from marrying a non-Christian or from going into business with a non-Christian. Now, while I would caution any Christian against marrying an unbeliever, I don't think this is the verse I would use necessarily. 
I don't think Paul is talking about marriage here at all. The context, which you should know by now, because we've been in 2 Corinthians for over a year now, the context in which this verse is found is not dealing with marriage or business relationships at all, right? We haven't seen any of that so far. And the context is the clue to understanding what it means to be unequally yoked. If this passage is merely addressing mixed marriages or mixed business partnerships between Christians and non-Christians, then most of us would ignore this verse as having nothing to do with us. If you're married to a Christian, then you'd be tempted to think that, well, this verse doesn't apply to me at all. But what we'll see today is that this section is about all of us. It's about our tendency to try to earn God's favor and keep his favor through our obedience. So this passage has nothing to do with marrying unbelievers. This passage has everything to do with us and how we live our lives every single day. This passage is actually a passage that can give you assurance every single day. This passage will remind you that you, Christian, have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that is the message that your heart needs to hear every single day of your life. And it's the message that you will hear forever in eternity as God shows us the wonders of His grace. We'll be reminded, I don't deserve to be here. And the only reason I'm here is because of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Actually, the passage before us today will tell us how to live a miserable life. So, if you woke up thinking, how can I live a miserable life today? I wonder if pastor is going to tell me. Well, this passage is for you. Here's our big idea today. Want a miserable life? Mix law and gospel. If you want to live a miserable life as a disciple, mix God's law and his gospel. Mix what God calls you to do. Mix that with what Jesus has already done for you. Shaken or stirred, whatever you prefer. You mix those and you'll be miserable. If you want to live a miserable life as a disciple, mix the commandments of the Bible with the good news. Mix the imperatives, the things that God does call you to do. Mix them with the indicatives, what Jesus has already done for you in Christ. If you mix law and gospel like a cocktail, and you mix these things in order to be accepted by God or to remain accepted by God or to feel accepted by God, then you'll have a spiritual hangover your entire life. Understand this. The gospel turns amazing grace into enslaving grace. It turns it into exhausting grace where you're on the performance treadmill and you're just tired because you just can't measure up. You just can't be faithful with your quiet times. You just can't measure up because there are days where you don't read the Bible and you just beat yourself up for that. That's the gospel. 
Listen, if you don't feel free, if you don't feel forgiven, if you can't relax as a disciple, then you've probably been slipping on a, sipping on a gospel cocktail. Now, one clue to help us see what it means to be unequally yoked is what precedes this admonition. Remember what we saw last week. Paul, Paul said his heart was wide open to the Corinthians, and he asked them, you guys widen your heart to me. Now, what we're going to do now to show you how I came to this conclusion. Let's get down to chapter 7 for a second. I want to show you how Paul has bookended this do not be unequally yoked passage uh, with this same heart imagery that we saw last week. I want to show you how this whole section fits together to make Paul's point. So let's go ahead and jump down to chapter 7, verse 2, and hear the word of the Lord. Paul picks up the same heart imagery. He says, make room in your hearts for us. For we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So notice that Paul picks up where he left off in chapter 6 verse 13 by asking the Corinthians again to make room in your hearts, chapter 7 verse 2, and then by reiterating again that you are in our hearts, chapter 7, verse 3. So Paul has bookended this do not be unequally yoked passage with this heart imagery. The technical term is called a chiasm. It comes from the Greek letter key, the X, and so it's a chiasm. It's where you have two or more similar points on the ends that are running parallel with the main point being sandwiched in the middle. It's a theology sandwich. And here it looks like this in 2 Corinthians. You've got the hearts at the top. Open wide your hearts. Your hearts are wide open. You go down to the bottom. Make room in your hearts. You're in our hearts. You go to the next section B, defilement with the world, being unequally yoked. And then the next section B is defilement with the world, cleansing ourselves. And then right in the middle that we'll look at next week, Chapter 6, verse 16b to 18, you have the gospel. So why would Paul start talking about his heart and mouth being wide open to the Corinthians and then interrupt himself and pick up the heart theme once again in chapter 7? In other words, why the abrupt change in topic? What makes Paul stop dead in his tracks as he discusses being transparent and open with the Corinthians and then switch to suddenly talking about being unequally yoked. Just to talk about marriage? No. And so to answer this question is to solve the whole passage before us. The abruptness is his point. Now, let me explain. Let's see exactly what Paul says when he interrupts his train of thought. Let's start in verse 11 of chapter 6. Remembering that the paragraph division is not intended to signal a new thought. So let's read it all together. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
not being unequally yoked is connected to this heart imagery. So what does it mean to be unequally yoked? What does that even mean? Well, Paul's alluding to two passages in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 22 and Leviticus chapter 19, which speak of yoking two animals together in order to plow a field. You wouldn't put an ox and a donkey together. They wouldn't work well together. It wouldn't be fair to either animal. It wouldn't be good for either animal. You must link two of the same animals, yoke them together so that they can work together at the same pace, plowing said field. That's the idea here. Paul is saying that you can't link truth and falsehood, can't yoke them together. You can't yoke Paul's theology with the super apostles' theology. That's what the Corinthians were doing. And that's what Paul means when he says, do not be unequally yoked. That's the context. And that's why I've mentioned the super apostles in every sermon for over a year. Because I knew this is where we're going. The Corinthians were hitched to Paul, a true apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And now many in this congregation had become hitched to the super apostles. So they were hearing in one ear, you better earn your way. You better keep the Mosaic law. You better get circumcised. You better obey all the food laws of the Old Testament. And then they're also hearing in the other ear, you were saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Y'all are secure. It is finished. Jesus can't remember your sins. And they were hearing both of these things in their ears. That's what it means to be unequally yoked. It's to mix works righteousness and being justified by faith. It's to mix the law and the gospel like a cocktail. It's to be told on the one hand, it is finished. And on the other, you better do your part to earn and maintain peace and assurance with God. And so when Paul says, widen your hearts, quit restricting your affections, he's saying, break it off with the super apostles. Unhitch the yoke. Break up with them. End the relationship. Call off the wedding. There's the heart imagery. Remember, the super apostles were most likely a group of Jewish people called Judaizers who were trying. This is what Judaizers did in the early church. They tried to get Christians to come back under the Mosaic law to be saved. It's the same group that Paul is dealing with in the book of Galatians. They were big on the Mosaic law. They stressed adherence to circumcision, the dietary laws, all those verses that you highlight about what you can eat and can't eat in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus, all the ones that you highlight when you read the Bible, those are the verses they loved. All the laws about mixing two different kinds of clothing, how you can't do that. Now, Paul does not believe that God's law is bad. Paul loves Deuteronomy. He loves Exodus. He loves Leviticus. He tells us in Romans 7 that the law is good. The law was given to reveal our sin. And if it does its job, the law actually leads us to Jesus. As Puritan Samuel Bolton said, the law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. 
Our obedience to God's law is nothing else but the expression of our thankfulness to God who has freely justified us. So the law says, you're a sinner, you need a savior. You run to Jesus, he says, I declare you righteous, you're justified. And because you're justified, you're like, well, of course I want to obey God's law now. Not to earn his favor, not to get in his good graces. I'm already in his good graces. This is a response of gratitude. And so like the Heidelberg Catechism is laid out, you have guilt and then grace, and then gratitude. So obedience is not bad as long as we aren't doing it in order to be accepted by God and to have peace with God. So here it is in a nutshell. The law tells us what we must do. The gospel tells us what Jesus has already done. He did for us what the law demands that we do. And so to mix the law with the gospel, to mix them together like a cocktail is to be told, it's done. Jesus paid it all. And then to be told, but you better do more. And you better try harder, buddy boy. You better pay your own way back to God. You better have your quiet time. Because Jesus will really be upset if you don't have a quiet time. Because he lives his whole life waiting to see if you're going to have your quiet time. And if you don't, oh, you just ruined his day. Or you better do this. Or you better do that. That's a form of a man-made law that we put on ourselves. Let me ask you again. You want a miserable life? Mix law and gospel. To mix law and gospel is to be unequally yoked. To mix the law with the good news is like mixing a, a cocktail when grace is meant to be drunk straight. As Robert Capon said when he highlighted the exclusivity of God's grace in saving sinners. In this quote, he's talking about how Luther and others rediscovered the gospel during the Reformation and just... How overwhelmed they were. He says the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering, drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace of bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel. After all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness, not the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. God saves us single-handedly. No bootstraps allowed. Grace has to be drunk straight. No ice, no ginger ale, just 200 proof grace. Just Christ crucified for sinners. Just God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No mixing our good works at all. No saying, but Jesus, I have my quiet time, so don't you love me a little bit more? Because that guy never has his. I know he doesn't. 
But I had my quiet time, Jesus. Just free grace, drunk straight. That's what this passage is all about. And so Paul continues his argument by showing the reason why the Corinthians should not be unequally yoked to the super apostles. And he does that by asking a series of questions in verses 14 to 16. Look there. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And the obvious answer to all these questions is nothing. We have nothing in common with these things. Keep in mind, though, that Paul is now calling the super apostles out. He's calling them unbelievers. No more subtweeting. He's not subtweeting them on, on Twitter anymore. Paul is spelling it out clearly. They are unbelievers. They are not united to Christ. He's calling their teaching darkness. He's calling their works righteousness doctrine as coming from Belial. The name Belial is from the Hebrew word for worthlessness, which was another name for Satan or the devil. The super apostles and their theology of you can be good enough to earn your way and keep your way. Paul says they're worthless, they're satanic, of the devil, darkness. So Paul is right to call them unbelievers. And that means that the Corinthians should have no business with these false teachers. They should not be yoked to them, unequally yoked to them. So this passage is not about Christians marrying unbelievers or Christians going into business with unbelievers. This passage is about refusing to have anything to do with works righteousness, earning your way to God, keeping your way with God, maintaining that relationship by any spiritual discipline that you do. Paul is saying, don't get on the performance treadmill and try to earn your way to God. Have nothing to do with that. Don't mix law and gospel like a cocktail. R.J. Gruen gives a recipe for mixing a gospel cocktail. He says that you need one ounce of Jesus, grace, and gospel talk, two ounces of do this, two ounces of try harder, and then for a garnish, lots of fruit. The more fruit, the better. And whatever you do, make sure to call it gospel-centered. Making gospel is simple and can be made easily by an amateur theologian. First, you need a little bit of law and a little bit of grace, and you need to start mixing those up. Being gospel-centered is actually popular in our evangelical subcultures, but what is often called gospel-centered is more accurately a well-mixed drink of gospel. It is the law disguised as gospel. It is something that people put their hope in, all the while having their consciences burdened by their own failures. Do you want to make some good gospel statements, he continues? Turn grace into something you do. Focus on the commands of Jesus. Love God, love others. Focus solely on the importance of the Christian being the embodiment of Christ in the world. Emphasize radical Christianity. Make sure the Christian is burdened with the call to live a radical missional lifestyle. And here's the key. Because none of those above statements are necessarily bad things. 
The commands of Jesus are good. Representing Christ to your neighbors is good. And living missionally is an important part of the Christian life. If you want to make the perfect gospel cocktail call the law gospel, make people think the gospel is something they need to do. Make people believe that the gospel is about their obedience instead of Christ's. The gospel cocktail is one of the most dangerous because people believe they are trusting the gospel while in reality their confidence rests in their own efforts and intentions. End quote. That's exactly what was happening at Corinth. And it's just so easy for us to do, isn't it? It's so easy to trust in our own works what we do for God, to rest and have confidence in our own efforts and our own intentions. How easy it is to put our hope in and get peace and assurance from how much we read the Bible. To put our hope in and receive peace and assurance from how much we serve. To put hope in and receive peace and assurance from how much we give financially to some ministry or our church. To put our hope in and to get peace from and assurance from how much we pray. Or to put hope in and get peace from and assurance from how radical we are. Or to put our hope in and get peace and assurance from how missional we are. And it's very subtle because these are all good things. Let me repeat that so that you don't understand me and so that I don't get 1,000 emails this week. Those are good things, okay? Everybody hear that? Those are good things. Praying is good. Reading your Bible is good. Serving is good. Giving is good. Serving and being involved in missions is good. These are all good things, but when they become the focus of the Christian life and not Christ, then we're well on our way to mixing up and drinking a gospel cocktail. If we focus on those things, there are only Two things that can happen when you focus on, have you been faithful in your quiet time? Have you been praying enough? Have you been evangelizing enough? Two things always happen when you look away from Jesus and what he has done and you turn inward to your own spirituality, your own disciplines, whatever. Two things can happen. You're either full of pride. It's May 2nd. I'm still in my Bible reading plan. Well, you know what? Last year, I thought I was a terrible Christian, but this year, 2021 is my year. Or you think about how much you pray. Or you think about, wow, man, I'm evangelizing. Everywhere I go, I give away a tract and tell people about Jesus. So you know what? I'm a pretty good disciple. Or it's pride. Pride comes in. When you focus on what you do for Jesus, pride comes in. Or the other thing happens. You despair because you're like, I had good intentions in January and I didn't even make it a week and I already quit reading my Bible. And I don't pray as much as I should. And gosh, how many times did I have the opportunity to share the gospel this week with my coworkers and I didn't do it. And then you just beat yourself up. So the inevitable options 
When you look inward to what you do is either pride or despair. But when you look outside of yourself and you're not subjective and you look out to the objective truth of Christ crucified for you, Jesus obeying for you, what you always end with is awe and wonder. And that awe and wonder will then make you go do all those good things. But if you get subjective and turn inward, it always either ends in pride or despair. And when you turn inward and get subjective, you begin drinking a gospel cocktail. When we make the focus of the Christian life what we do or what we don't do, and not what Jesus has done, then we're on our way to becoming a gospel bartender. We've become unequally yoked with works righteousness, which is exactly what the super apostles were peddling. So here's how you know that you have mixed law and gospel. And we all do this more than we want. Here's how you know that you've been preaching the gospel to yourself. If you live with a sort of vague, nagging sense of God's disapproval, then you're mixing a gospel cocktail. You ever wake up and just kind of have this vague sense that God is upset with you? Your default way of thinking about him is that he always has a frown on his face or he's just kind of like, really? Maybe you think of him as like a grumpy dad. Then you're mixing law and gospel. Maybe you think he's always mad at you, always let down by you. If that's you, you need a straight shot of good news. If you feel burdened by your own failures, or if you feel good about yourself because of all that you do for God, then you're mixing a gospel cocktail. If your failures have you paralyzed, your lack of Bible reading, anybody feel that? Or your lack of prayer, you need to be set free. Or if you take pride in how radical you've been for Jesus, or how constantly missional you are, you have yoked yourself with something other than Jesus. Or if you kind of feel sheepish about bringing your needs to Jesus after you've really failed him, then you're mixing a gospel cocktail. Like when you blow it and you do that sin that you've repented of millions of times and you said, Jesus, that's it, never. I'm not, I mean it this time, Jesus, for real. Not going back there, I swear, I promise you. I'm never going back there, okay, Jesus? Hello, you do that, and you think, well, now I, can, I just promised him I'd never do it, and I've done it. How can I go to him and say, Jesus, I really need you right now? If you feel that way, if you feel like you have to be in a probationary period, I promised I wouldn't do it, I went and did it, and now two hours. He'll cool down in two hours. If you feel like Jesus needs to put you in a timeout after you've sinned, before you can come into his presence, then you're unequally yoked. If you think, I just sinned, how in the world can I ask him for anything? Then you're unequally yoked with some man-made law. Maybe you assume that you've sinned so, so, so many times that you have actually used up your credit of forgiveness. Go to swipe the card of forgiveness. Declined. Maxed out. If that's you, you're mixing a gospel cocktail. You need to blast your heart with the good news. 
So let's say that you've sinned your sin, the one that you're good at, and you've done it over and over, and there's no way God can forgive you now. If that's you, you need some 200-proof grace. If you feel more confident before God because you have been faithful with your quiet times in prayer and witnessing, you feel more confident for, before Him because of what you've done for Him, then you're also mixing a gospel cocktail. If you think that you get a speed pass right to God, not because of Jesus' performance, but because of yours, then you need to blast your heart with the gospel. If you can't honestly say that you see yourself as blameless in God's eyes and you're flirting with the gospel, do you live with this low-level hum, this ongoing, nagging sense of just feeling dirty? Do you always feel dirty? Just can't shake that. Unclean. If so, you need to rehearse the gospel. Maybe you fear that the day is not going to go as well as expected because you missed your quiet time. Maybe you oversleep and you don't have time to read the Bible or pray before work. Or maybe you don't even want to read the Bible or pray before you go to work. You ever feel that way? Of course you have, right? And now you begin thinking your whole day is going to be ruined because I didn't read my Bible and pray or I didn't even want to read my Bible and pray today. So certainly the day is going to be ruined now. Surely God's after me. It's one thing if I miss because I oversleep it. What's he going to do if I don't really want to do it in my heart of hearts? Is God that fickle? I sure hope not. He's not, by the way. He's not that fickle. Aren't you glad? If you assume that you can do something to make him love you more, or if you assume that you can do something to make him love you less, then you are... Shaking or stirring a gospel cocktail. You don't understand grace. The table before us today tells us the most important thing about us. What Jesus has done for us. This is the center. The focus of the Christian life. The life, death, resurrection and ascension of our Lord and Savior. And so when we come to this table today, tables actually today, plural, I'll explain it in a moment. When we come to the tables, Jesus comes to you and he comes to me and he says, you bring your internet history, I'll bring the bread and wine. That's what we celebrate here at the Lord's Supper. You bring your internet history, Jesus brings the bread and wine. You bring your past, that thing that haunts you. You just can't seem to shake all the guilt that you feel that's weighing you down. You bring that and Jesus says, I'll bring the bread and wine. We'll have a party. You bring how you yelled at your kids as you got ready for church this morning. I thought about that getting ready. We didn't yell at our house today. <laughs> at least by the time I left, that was great. Okay? But I thought about it. I thought, man, the level of sanctification that needs to take place in a parent's heart <laughs> really comes to the forefront on Sunday morning, doesn't it? It's like, man, the 
people say, we're not sinners, like, well, let me come into your house on Sunday morning before church. Okay, we had a good day today. But you bring how you yelled at your kids this morning, and Jesus says, I'll bring the bread and the wine, or juice, as in our case, in case some of you were getting uncomfortable. You bring that bitterness that's eating away at you, that hatred, that jealousy, that resentment, and Jesus brings the bread and wine. You bring whatever it is that you're ashamed of. And Jesus will meet you here this morning with his grace. As the prophet Isaiah said, it was part of our call to worship this morning in Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 2, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, and without price. In other words, it's free. It's free. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Come. Rondi Lauterbach says this. She says this about this passage. I love it. God's invitation comes to us through the prophet Isaiah. God is insistent, almost pushy. I love that. God is insistent in Isaiah 55, almost pushy. Come, 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 come. Four times we are invited. He must really mean it. And he does. He means it. Come. And we're going to have you come forward today too. I'll explain in a moment. First, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're not fickle. Oh, we have created this image of you in our minds, which is so antithetical to the truth of who you were, who you are, the truth of the gospel. Forgive us. Oh, forgive us for the pride we feel when we do things for you. Forgive us of the despair we feel when we don't do the things that we're supposed to do. May we not get subjective and look inward, Jesus. May we look outward to the objective truth of what you have done for us and may that create awe and wonder and worship so that we go love you, so that we go love our neighbors. We need your spirit to help us if we're to do this. We want to be free, Jesus. So we're going to take you up on your offer. You're a little pushy here, a little insistent in Isaiah 55. And so we're going to come to you this morning in faith, believing that you want us here at this table, that you want to meet us, that you want to assure us, forgive us, love us. And so, Jesus, we're going to eat and drink and celebrate in a moment so that we walk out of here free, full of joy, full of awe and wonder and living lives that please you. But we need your spirit to help us. And we believe that the spirit will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.